0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised.
0: In the early 90s, one of the countries located in the Horn of Africa was facing an overwhelming humanitarian crisis. Somalia was in the midst of a drought and a brutal civil war, which together fueled a famine of staggering proportions. Thousands of people were dying every week from starvation and lack of medicine. In some cases, parents killed their own dying children to spare them from further agony. As a result, more than 1.5 million refugees fled the country, nearly one-fifth of Somalia's population. Making the situation even worse, militia leaders stole the desperately needed aid being sent to Somalia from other nations and sold it on the black market. To ensure that food and medicine got to those in need, the United Nations approved a multinational humanitarian intervention led by the United States. For their part, Canada sent a 1,400 strong force to be part of the mission, including the Canadian Airborne Regiment. On March 16, 1993, four months after the regiment was deployed, 16-year-old Shadane Abukar Aron was caught trespassing on their base. A short time later, the teenager was dead. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s. On this episode, we look back at the Somalia Affair, one of the ugliest incidents of modern Canadian history. An incident that would tarnish the country's reputation as a preeminent Peacekeeper. Canada's elite airborne regiment traces its roots back to two parachute battalions that were formed during World War II. One served with British units and dropped into Normandy on D-Day in 1944. The other battalion served alongside US commandos in Italy and Southern France, fighting in some of World War II's most famous battles. In 1968, the Canadian Airborne was officially authorized as a regiment, It was originally set up as a quick strike force based in Edmonton, Alberta, for deployment to counter Soviet troops in the event of a war. Members who were known for their maroon-coloured berets specialised in low-level parachute drops with full gear. The troopers jumped from as low as 650 feet, which would be considered suicidal for an average jumper. The Airborne Regiment was deployed twice inside Canada. First during the October crisis in Quebec in 1970, when a terrorist group kidnapped a Quebec cabinet minister and a British diplomat. And then again during the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, where they provided counter-terrorism support. Outside of Canada, the regiment was deployed to Cyprus in 1974 as part of a UN peacekeeping mission. They received universal acclaim for their efforts. Then in 1992, it was announced the regiment was being sent to Somalia as part of a UN peacekeeping mission. But in October of that year, just two months before its scheduled deployment, military brass became concerned about the regiment's readiness. According to a Toronto Star report in 1994, soldiers from 2 Commando, one of the regiment's three units, had been involved in some troubling incidents that month. The first was a drinking party that got out of hand when soldiers fired off thunder flashes outside their barracks. Thunder flashes are powerful pyrotechnics typically used for combat simulations. A sergeant shut the party down, and then later that day, that sergeant's car was set on fire on the parade square. The blaze was set by placing military flares inside the Ford Escort. Then, the very next night, a group of soldiers from 2 Commando, this time armed with shotguns, took a case of beer to a nearby provincial park. They lit a bonfire, and then they fired off more pyrotechnics. If those two troubling incidents weren't enough, there were also rumours of drug abuse in the regiment, which included reported cases of cocaine use. There was also a lot of talk about steroids. Members of this elite troop obsessively pumped iron at the base gym, and a doctor noticed that many of the soldiers had symptoms of steroid use, overdeveloped muscles, undersized testicles, and mood swings that included something referred to as roid rage. And it was also reported that some of the soldiers in 2 Commando had ties to white supremacist groups. Corporal Matt McKay, who appeared in a 1991 news photo wearing a Hitler t-shirt and standing in front of a swastika flag, had previously been a member of the Aryan nation. And the Toronto-based Heritage Front said that several members of their neo-Nazi group came from the regiment. According to the Toronto Star's 1994 reporting, the Confederate flag became a semi-official symbol, especially for two commando, and it often flew from the barracks window after a member of the unit was disciplined, a symbolic flip of the bird to authorities. Because of the discipline problems and other issues with the regiment's readiness, their commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Morneau, was relieved of his position. He was replaced by Lieutenant Colonel Carol Mathieu, a decorated career officer with a reputation for toughness. Well, the mandate of the mission is to escort food convoys, a uh, secure distribution center, and allow the AIDS worker to
1: carry on with the task of uh, saving the starving Somalia.
0: Mathieu said two Hercules transport planes loaded with equipment and supplies would be sent to Somalia to maintain a command post. Among the supplies would be armaments and ammunition. We have to defend our uh, our equipment and our uh, food and our convoys and the people, uh, the uh, coalition people. Uh, we have to defend uh, the aid workers. So anybody that is interfering with that, we have the right uh, to, uh, to defend them. In December 1992, one week before Christmas, the Canadian Airborne Regiment was deployed to Somalia as planned. On board one of the transport planes headed to the war-torn country, was a young private by the name of Kyle Brown. He was resigned to spending the holidays away from home, but was concerned with what might lay ahead. Uh, there's, you know, there's always the uh, apprehension, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of fear going over. You don't really know what to expect other than, you know, what we've been told and uh, uh, just keep our heads up and take it as it comes. Brown had no idea that his life would be forever changed just a few months later. After a 31-hour flight, the Troubled Airborne Regiment touched down in Somalia on a desert airstrip. They were stationed 160 miles from the capital Mogadishu at a camp just outside the town of Balatwain, which is set in the Somali desert near the Ethiopian border. It's difficult terrain, lots of red-brown dirt, rocks, and tangled bushes. The accommodations were pretty basic, canvas tents with cots and latrines in the open desert. Daytime highs reached 113 degrees Fahrenheit, so heat exhaustion and heat stroke were very real concerns. And miniature sand tornadoes, known as dust devils, often ripped through the camp. If the unrelenting heat wasn't enough, soldiers also had to be on the lookout for deadly scorpions, giant slugs, snakes, and camel spiders, which are the size of a man's hand and can eat meat. Within weeks of their arrival, hundreds of Somalis set up their own camp around the Canadian compound. And almost every night, desperate Somalis, many of them teenagers, would try sneaking into the camp to steal equipment, weapons, and food. In some cases, they would take off their clothes, grease their bodies, and slip through the wire set up along the perimeter of the camp. Some managed to steal from the Canadians, while others were caught by soldiers on patrol. An inquiry into the Somali affair heard that after setting up camp in the African country, commanding officer Lieutenant Colonel Mathieu issued a directive. He said if a Somali was caught stealing equipment, the soldiers could shoot to kill. A short time later, soldiers acted on the directive. On March 4, 1993, two Somali men snuck into the camp and were shot by Canadian soldiers. One of the men died. Military surgeon Barry Armstrong conducted an autopsy and he concluded that he believed the man was shot in the back, execution style, at point-blank range. But commanders dismissed the doctor's findings and didn't report them to their superiors. The official report that went out to the media stated the following. Soldiers yelled at the men to stop in both English and Somali. Warning shots were fired and when the men still didn't stop, soldiers shot them. Colonel Serge LeBay, Canada's commander in charge of the Somalia mission, said the Somali men behaved like trained soldiers, and he implied they may have been in the compound to steal U.S. helicopters. No one was ever charged in connection with the killing. Then just 12 days later, there was another death in the Canadian camp. And this one would horrify a nation and stain Canada's reputation as a trusted peacekeeper. Shidane Abukar Aron was born on the open desert of southwestern Somalia, an area so scorched and desolate that nomads call it Gubin, which means the burnt country. It's one of the hottest, driest ranges on earth, and the nomads who live there are known for their toughness and their strong Muslim faith. According to reporting by the Toronto Star in 1994, as soon as Shadane could walk, he started helping with the goats. By the time he was 10 years old, he was helping his older brothers tend the camel herd. They gave each camel a name and would sing to them as they walked through the desert. And even though in 1993 he was only 16, Shadane had a wife that he inherited from an older brother who died from malaria. This is a practice known as widow inheritance a tradition that is sometimes common in rural areas of Somalia. Shidane and his wife lived together in a hut made of sticks covered in animal skins and cardboard scraps, which they broke down and packed on the back of a camel when they moved across the desert looking for water. In March 1993, they had made their way to Bella Twain, near the Ethiopian border. On a clear, cool night at around 8.40 p.m., Shadane was spotted by an eight-man patrol trying to sneak in to an abandoned American compound adjacent to the Two Commando camp. According to a McLean's article in 1994, the five-foot-four, 120-pound teenager was attempting to crawl through a barbed wire fence. The patrol chased Shadane and found him hiding in a portable toilet. He told soldiers he was in the camp looking for a lost child. They didn't believe him, though, and took him into custody. The story of what happened next was revealed in subsequent legal proceedings. Soldiers placed Shadane into a makeshift holding cell. The bunker was known as The Pit, and it was seven feet by nine feet and had sandbag walls. Because you had to walk down a few steps to enter the pit, it felt and looked like a cave. Sergeant Mark Boland left two soldiers in charge of Shedane. 27 year old Master Corporal Clayton Macchi, and 25 year old Private Kyle Brown. The same soldier you heard leaving for Somalia earlier in the podcast. The sergeant reportedly told the men, I don't care what you do, just don't kill the guy. Shadane was then blindfolded and beaten and tortured for three hours. Machi repeatedly punched and kicked Aron, whose arms were bound behind him and tied to the roof beams. His ankles were cinched together with a zap strap. Machi hit Shidane with a baton, using full arm extension swings, methodically striking his feet, stomach, chest, and head. Shidane's lips were bleeding and swollen. His nose was fractured and one cheekbone was visible. Streams of blood ran over his body and into the sand. Brown told Machi to stop, but Machi refused, saying he wanted to kill the teenager. Brown admitted later at his court-martial that he also took a few shots at Shidane when he was first captured. And for some reason, he got a camera and started taking pictures. He took a series of 16 gruesome photos that show Machi posing with his young prisoner in different positions. Three of the graphic images show Machi holding an automatic pistol to Shidane's head. His hands are tied behind his back to a wooden riot baton. His feet are bound with plastic handcuffs. In other photos, Machi is seen jamming a baton between Shidane's bloody swollen lips or using the baton to prop up Shidane's slumping head. In one, Machi is smirking as he points at his blindfolded prisoner. Brown posed in two pictures as well. He's seen holding Shidane's head up by his hair. Over the course of this horrifying beating, Shidane begged for mercy, saying Canada over and over, the only English word he knew. His cries were heard throughout the camp. As many as 80 people heard his screams, including officers, but no one came to his aid. During the relentless torture, up to 16 soldiers stuck their head into the pit to see what was going on. And yet none put a stop to it. Master Corporal Machi continued abusing Shidane. He burned his feet with a cigarette, he kicked him, and he beat the 16-year-old with his baton. Just before midnight, Machi hit Shadane in his face four times with the baton. He hung lifeless by his restraints. Brown went back to his tent. A few minutes later, Machi came to the tent and told him that Shadane had stopped breathing. Brown finally decided to tell someone what was going on. He found Sergeant Hillier, who rushed to the bunker to see for himself. He was shocked at what he found. 16-year-old Shadane Arone, was dead. A truck was ordered to take Shadane's body to the hospital, where he was examined by an airborne medical officer. Captain Neil Gibson determined the teenager died of a head injury. No x-rays or other tests were performed, and it was decided no autopsy would be conducted. Captain Gibson said the injuries could have been sustained during an arrest, his official report noted only two bruises on Shadane's severely battered body. Then on March 18th, two days after the beating, Private Brown went to Major Anthony Seward, who was in charge of Commando 2, and told him what had happened inside the pit. And he handed over the film from his camera. After Brown's confession, Matchy was arrested and put in a prison bunker. The next day, on March 19th, Machi tried to hang himself. He was cut down in time by a guard and rushed to a medical tent. News of Shadane's death would not be made public for two weeks. On March 31st, the Canadian Defence Department revealed that four soldiers were being investigated for the beating and torture of a 16-year-old Somali teen. Master Corporal Clayton Machi was one of them, and by the time the story broke back in Canada, he had already been transferred to the National Defence Medical Centre in Ottawa, where he remained in a coma after the suicide attempt. Mystery swirled around what had taken place thousands of miles away.
1: There have also been questions raised about Macchi's alleged suicide attempt. A report indicated that his laces were still in his boots when he was found hanging, even though the Defense Department has said he used a boot lace to try to kill himself. Defense Minister Tom Siddon issued a written statement reiterating the official position that this was nothing other than an unaided suicide attempt. Sean Mallon, Global News,
0: Toronto. Macchi eventually awoke from the coma, but he had severe and irreversible brain damage. So, who was the man that for three hours savagely beat a Somali teen to death? Master Corporal Clayton Machi was born and raised on the Flying Dust Reserve just outside the small town of Meadow Lake in northern Saskatchewan. According to reporting by the Toronto Star in 1994, the Machis are full blooded Cree descended from an ancestral chief. Clayton and his siblings were taught to be proud of their heritage. He dreamed of adventure and travel, so at the age of 17, he went to the Canadian Forces Recruiting Center in Saskatoon and filled out an application. He was accepted, and after basic training, he was stationed in Victoria, BC. And in 1988, Machi joined the Airborne Regiment. As a newbie, he was targeted because he's First Nations. Soldiers nicknamed him Geronimo, which Machi hated. He endured hazing and was eventually accepted by his comrades and took up many of their habits, lifting weights, chewing tobacco, and drinking pretty heavily. Before leaving for Somalia, he wrote a letter to his father. In it, he included a recent photo of himself taken in the airborne barracks. It showed him standing in front of a red and blue Confederate flag. Back in Canada, once the news broke of the arrests of Matchy and Brown, people began asking why it took two weeks for the death to be made public. Had there been a cover-up? The Canadian defence minister at the time was Kim Campbell. She said her department didn't try to cover up anything. She blamed poor communication for the delay in releasing information. She was repeatedly asked in the House of Commons why it took so long for the Canadian public to be told about the murder investigation.
1: With respect to the event to which the honorable member refers, I was briefed the next day that a death had taken place. It was not until the 31st of March that it was communicated to me
0: that that death had now been characterized as, as a homicide or as a murder. At the time, in 1992, Kim Campbell was involved in the race to become the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. In fact, she was the leading contender to replace outgoing Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney. Campbell was accused by opposition MPs of ignoring her duties as defence minister to focus on the leadership race and her reputation. In May 1993, two months after the beating of Shaday Narone, Private Kyle Brown and Master Corporal Clayton Macchi were charged with second-degree murder. It was the first time that Canadian soldiers on a UN peacekeeping mission were charged with such serious offences. Major Anthony Seward, commander of Commando 2, was also charged with unlawfully causing bodily harm and negligent performance of duty. And Lieutenant Colonel Carol Mathieu, commanding officer of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, was charged with negligent performance of duties. Before their court-martials were held, the Canadian government gave the family of Shidane Aron the equivalent of 100 camels, or $15,000 US, as compensation for his death. The payment was made in cash to the head of the Aron clan, and in return, the family signed a waiver denying them any more claims against the Canadian government. Private Kyle Brown was the first to go on trial in military court. According to a 1994 report by the Edmonton Journal, Brown grew up in a working-class section of Edmonton. His mom died of an accidental drug overdose when he was 14. A year later, his father died by suicide. He enlisted in sea cadets at 13, the militia at 18, and the regular army at 20. When Brown took the stand at his court-martial, he spoke softly and kept his eyes down. He admitted that he had punched and kicked Shadane five or six times when he was first captured. But Brown said he didn't take part in the rest of the beatings. He claimed he had given Shadane water and washed the blood off his face. And he said he tried to convince Machi to stop on several occasions, but he just wouldn't listen. As for the pictures of a bruised and battered Shadane, Brown said he took photos because he couldn't believe what he was seeing and he didn't think anyone else would believe it either. The 16 photos were entered as exhibits in the court-martial, but they were placed under a publication ban until all the court-martials were completed. Some of them were eventually released to the media in November 1994. Some were deemed too gruesome to ever be made public. Canadians were shocked when they saw the gory photos of the blindfolded 16-year-old bloody and bruised. Brown is shown in two of the photos. He testified that Machi had instructed him to pose with Shidane. When he was asked why he went along with it, Brown said it was hard to think straight. He was in shock and disbelief, and it was hard for him to know what to do. Several witnesses testified that the morning before Shidane was captured, orders had been passed down through the Airborne chain of command to abuse captured intruders to discourage them from returning to loot the compound. When testimony concluded, the five-member court-martial panel of senior military officers deliberated for nearly 24 hours before reaching a verdict.
1: Private Brown was marched in, and the president of the court-martial delivered that verdict. Not guilty of second-degree murder, guilty of manslaughter, guilty of torture. Brown is the first Canadian to be convicted of torture. When he heard the verdict, Brown appeared shaken, but a few minutes later, he had nothing to say. I'm sorry, I have no
0: comment. Brown was sentenced to five years in prison and dismissed from the military with disgrace. Major Anthony Seward, the officer in charge of Commando 2 unit, was known as a commanding officer who performed above and beyond the call of duty during the mission in Somalia. He received outstanding performance evaluations from his superiors. But he admitted during his court-martial that he should not have instructed his soldiers to abuse prisoners. He testified that what he meant was troopers should use the force necessary to capture intruders. Following a three-week trial, Major Seward was convicted of negligent performance of duty. But after a 10-hour deliberation, the court-martial panel acquitted him of the more serious charge of causing bodily harm. He was sentenced to three months in jail and was dismissed from the Canadian military. Lieutenant Colonel Carol Mathieu, the tough-talking commander in charge of the Airborne Regiment, was charged with disobeying orders by telling his soldiers to shoot at looters in the camp he was the highest-ranking officer connected with the death of Shidane. At the end of his court-martial, he stood ramrod straight to hear his verdict. After eight hours of deliberations, the five-member court-martial acquitted Mathieu. Then, the lieutenant colonel put on his beret and saluted, showing no emotion at the end of his ordeal. As for Master Corporal Machi, well, because he suffered severe brain damage from his suicide attempt— he was found unfit to stand trial, and the charges against him were stayed. But the fallout didn't end there. Captain Michael Sox, the platoon commander and immediate superior to Brown and Matchy, was found guilty of negligent performance of duty. During his trial, the prosecution argued Sox started the chain of events that led to Rarone's death by telling his section commanders about an order to abuse prisoners. He was demoted to lieutenant and received a severe reprimand. Sergeant Mark Bolin pleaded guilty to negligent performance of duty and was sentenced to one year in jail. Bolin, then a section commander, admitted he went to bed after one of his soldiers discussed assaulting Arone and suggested burning the prisoner's feet with a cigarette. He was also dismissed from the military. Two other soldiers were charged but acquitted, and at least seven more soldiers who stopped by the bunker and witnessed at least part of the beating were formally censured for not trying to stop the attack or report it to a superior. The court-martials had raised many concerns about the military operation in Somalia and whether there had been an attempt to cover up Shidane's death. In November 1994, following the completion of all court-martials, the new Defence Minister, David Collinette, called a civilian-led public inquiry into what was now known as the Somalia Affair. Collinet and his Liberal Party were now the government in Canada, beating out Kim Campbell, the former Conservative Defence Minister, who went on to become Prime Minister for a short time.
1: We will initiate a process that will get to the bottom of every single aspect of this very troubling uh, case.
0: Colinette promised that all allegations and concerns raised by anyone connected with the Somalia affair would be dealt with by this inquiry. Then in January 1995, as the Somali affair was fading from public minds, Canadians were rattled yet again when a home movie made by a soldier in the airborne regiment was released by the media. The two-hour video was taken just weeks before 16-year-old Shaday Aron was beaten to death. And though it contains mostly scenes of the marketplace in Bella Twain and soldiers relaxing around the Canadian camp, it also shows a very disturbing side of some of the soldiers in the regiment. And before we play this, I need to warn you that there is some very graphic language.
1: Corporal McKay, what do you think about the tour? Hey, it sucks cock, man. We ain't coming up near us (laughs) yet.
0: Corporal Matt McKay, the soldier being asked about the Somalia mission in this clip, is a self-confessed white supremacist. He's the one I mentioned earlier, who had once belonged to the Alberta-based group named the Aryan Nation. In another part of the video, Private David Brocklebank answers questions by the cameraman as he holds a heavy-caliber machine gun and has on blackface camouflage.
1: What's this operation called? This operation here? Operation Snatch Nignog.
0: Exactly. Operation Snatch Negas. <laughs> Negas. hold the gun out. He's holding the gun out and making shooting sounds. Then he walks off camera laughing and says he's going to kill some Somalis. Brocklebank was one of the soldiers acquitted after Shaday Naron's death. Meanwhile, in the background, you see Private Kyle Brown quietly tidying his things, ignoring the cameraman and Private Brocklebank. In another scene, a soldier holding a riot baton is asked what the stick is for. He says, cracking those small Somalis, breaking arms, legs, and limbs. Then another soldier standing in front of a local police station gives his assessment of the situation in bala Twain. Master Corporal Smith, how do you feel your... Uh presence in Somalia is helping the starving Somalian children. Let's get something straight. There's no one starving here, okay? This is a police station. This is where 150 people hang out and eat wheat. That's all they do. They never work. Well, they're lazy. They're slobs and they stink. The video was made in February and March 1993, weeks before Shaday Narone was killed. But it wasn't released until January 1995, after all of the court-martials were completed. Here's how it happened. A copy of it was handed over to Scott Taylor. He's the publisher of a Canadian military magazine called Esprit de Corps. Taylor says the person who gave it to him didn't think that Private Brown had been treated fairly. He thought he'd been made a scapegoat. The video would show that Brown was not like the other soldiers in the regiment. Taylor says the video also showed that soldiers were totally frustrated with a mission that had problems at many different levels, and they felt abandoned by a lack of leadership.
1: And in one case where the guy is showing, I mean, this is just a soldier showing that they're delivering food to a police station, and then he says, now follow me, and they walk around the back, and the same sacks of grain are going out the back door and being sold uh, right right in front of the soldiers. I mean, he says, we're not helping, we're just adding to the corruption. And they were able to blatantly film this and they could see it. I mean, so you could sense that this was happening, that they knew the mission was just, I mean, they were they were there, they were they were frustrated and all the things that they were going through were not achieving any of the goals that were being claimed back here. So it was just to, to kind of put the, the mission into some sort of context.
0: Taylor says he decided to give the video to the CBC with the understanding they would highlight the frustration with the mission. Instead, the CBC focused on the racist remarks made by some of the soldiers. And as you would expect, that became the main story. The reaction to the video by the federal government in Ottawa was swift. Defence Minister David Collinette said soldiers who display the kind of racism seen in the video should be kicked out of the military. He said, We will not tolerate those kinds of views in the armed forces. There would be zero tolerance. The head of Canada's military, Chief of Defence Staff John de Chastellane, ordered a military investigation into the home movie. But then, in a one-two punch, a second damning video was released. This tape had been given to CTV News by a former member of the Airborne Regiment. It showed members of the regiment taking part in a hazing ceremony. Some excerpts from the one-hour video were broadcast on television news, but most of it was too graphic to show on TV. It was taken at the Airborne Base in Patawawa, Ontario in July 1992, five months before the regiment was deployed to Somalia. Scott Taylor, along with a military officer, were invited to watch the tape at CTV studios before it was released.
1: They brought us in, and we had never seen or heard of this hazing video before, and they they ran it for us, filming us watching the film. And uh, it was disgusting. I mean, and a lot of things that they didn't put on TV is because you can't put that on TV. I mean, they say that it was simulated sodomy. Well, no, it was sodomy. It was stuff that was feces. There was, like, all kinds of things. And Colonel Triple at one point left. I mean, he was was sickened um, by what he was watching.
0: The video shows soldiers urinating and defecating on each other. There's one scene where someone is forced to eat toilet paper with feces on it. And in another, a black soldier is tied to a tree and showered in white talcum powder. Then someone writes KKK on his back with feces. The black recruit was also put on a leash and made to walk like a dog. Again, Defense Minister David Collinet expressed outrage and disgust. In a statement, he said the activities of these people denigrates Canada's proud Canadian military heritage. Colinette demanded a full report from General de Chastellane in five days. On Monday, January 23, 1995, nearly two years since the death of 16-year-old Chiday Aron, the government received its report from the head of the military. In it, de Chastellane said the problems had been cleaned up in the regiment he recommended the regiment be kept together and it should be allowed to go to Croatia in April 1995 on a scheduled peacekeeping mission. De Chastellane believed the regiment deserved another chance. Colinette disagreed. He rejected the advice and promptly went to the media and announced that the Canadian Airborne Regiment was finished.
1: We had to make the judgment whether the stain on the Airborne's reputation was such that it could not be resuscitated uh, in the public eye. We have made that judgment and it is for that reason we have called for the disbanding of the regiment.
0: Defence Minister David Collinet said at a news conference it was important to show Canadians that the actions demonstrated in the two videos would not be tolerated. General de Chastellane was at the news conference too. He sat like a statue beside Collinet, his lips tightly pursed together. Later, he told reporters that they shouldn't read anything into his expression. He said he always looks serious, especially on occasions like this one. Scott Taylor said he was furious at General de Chastellain.
1: And the next thing that should have happened would have been de Chastelaine taking off his epaulettes and resigning right there and then. Because if you're paid to give advice, and he'd given the advice to keep the regiment, and then they, politically they said to, to get rid of it, and... He didn't, and then he took a ton of heat The Shafton over were not having resigned because of this.
0: The defence minister also announced at the news conference that the upcoming inquiry into the Somalia affair would have an expanded mandate. It would look into the roles of leadership and discipline within the chain of command, from the top to the bottom. Two months after the government announced that the Airborne Regiment would be disbanded, a farewell send-off was held at their home base in Petawawa, Ontario. More than 600 members of the Canadian Airborne Regiment made a final parachute jump as fellow soldiers and about 2,000 supporters watched on. Some members of the regiment wept as they stood at attention, falling into line behind their commander one last time. They felt that dismantling the acclaimed unit because of a few bad apples wasn't necessary, especially since there had been so many issues with the Somalia mission as a whole.
1: As the airborne is disbanded, the soldiers will return to their home bases. Some veterans think the government jumped too quickly. Well, I don't see this at all being fair to the thousands of Canadians who served this regiment in their country extremely well.
0: The disgraced regiment was the first military unit ever to be disbanded in Canadian history because of its actions. About two weeks later, the government announced the three civilians who would oversee the public inquiry into the regiment's ill-fated mission to Somalia. A judge, a journalist, and a diplomat were appointed to the task. The inquiry was expected to cost between 3 and $5 million and would be chaired by Mr. Justice Gilles Letourneau. The hearing was expected to last three or four months, with a report expected by the end of 1995. But by January 1997, the inquiry was still grinding on. So far, it had cost $10 million and had been given two extensions. So the government made a move to shut it down. The defense minister, who was now Doug Young, told the commissioners they had to complete the inquiry by March 31, 1997, and submit a report by June 30th of the same year. So far, the inquiry had only managed to cover a few of the major issues that plagued the Somalia mission. They had investigated the first shooting of an intruder in 1993, the one where a Somalian man was killed after being caught sneaking into the Canadian compound. The inquiry had also been able to deal with allegations of document tampering and destruction that took place at the military's public affairs branch after the mission was over. But because the hearings were shut down, the commission was unable to take a closer look at the killing of 16-year-old Shadane Aron, which sparked the Somalia affair in the first place. The final report, a 1,600-page document, was released on July 2, 1997. It was called Dishonored Legacy, the Lessons of the Somalia Affair. In it, Canada's military leaders were accused of covering up, lying, and maybe even breaking the law to hide the truth about the Somalia Affair. In particular, the commission believed there had been a cover-up about the first shooting incident, a cover-up that involved people in Ottawa and Somalia. They believe the shooting death should have, at the very least, been investigated as manslaughter, but it wasn't. No soldier was ever charged in direct connection with the death. The inquiry heard that Deputy Defense Minister Bob Fowler had met with members of the High Command around the time of the shooting in March 1993 and told them they should keep a low profile because then-Defense Minister Kim Campbell was a candidate for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party. Whether that directive came from Campbell or was made by Fowler on his own, the inquiry was unable to determine before it was shut down. The commission wasn't able to pinpoint who was to blame for the cover-up, or how far it went up the chain of command. But the report did say the cover-up of the first shooting may have paved the way for the killing of Shadai Aron two weeks later, because soldiers may have gotten the feeling that they were above the law. The report stated, It is our belief that the failure of leadership immediately to address and remedy the problems revealed by the March 4th incident may have made possible the torture death of a Somali youth 12 days later. Commission Chair Gilles Letourneau credited many rank-and-file soldiers for a job well done and said in the report that they had been let down.
1: Ordinary soldiers were,
0: in a very real sense, victimized by the systemic and leadership failures that plagued the Somalia mission. Chair Letourneau said at the command level, the commission found deep moral and legal failings. He said there was a strategy of calculated deception on the part of the senior officers and bureaucrats who testified at the inquiry. And he urged the government to look into prosecuting officers who lied under oath. Art Eggleton was the defense minister in Ottawa when the report was released. He didn't hide his anger.
1: Dishonored legacy goes too far. It's a blanket condemnation of our military. An unfair and unjust one. It's an insult.
0: Eggleton rejected commission claims that there had been a cover-up, and he said there was no reason to investigate the commission's accusations any further. Eggleton said the time for pointing fingers was over. It was now time to get on with reforms. Over the years since the Somalia Affair, the Canadian government has remodeled the Canadian forces by completely revamping education and professional standards. Officers must now have a university degree, and military education now offers a more expanded emphasis on arts and culture. Scott Taylor says a lack of education was not the problem in Somalia.
1: I don't think you need a university education to say, don't beat a prisoner to death. Um, might not be good for the hearts and minds. And then if you do, don't cover it up. I mean, come clean, right? So um, some of these things just are basic common sense. You wouldn't need more than grade five to have been, been up on this one.
0: But Taylor says there's been a massive cultural shift in Canada's military since Somalia. He says the entire officer corps has changed its ethos.
1: I almost liken that era of scandals to, that was kind of Canada's Vietnam, I mean Somalia, but then the others around it, that sort of brought about a massive change, took took the rust off and took these guys out of it, because there was definitely a lot of um, bad apples in senior places that felt they could get away with this stuff, just because there was no light being shone into any of those corners, and of course it's an autocratic, top-down loyalty-driven society, right?
0: In 1997, Kyle Brown was released from prison, serving 40 months of his five-year sentence. He tried to start a new life in Alberta, went back to school, found a job, and he wrote a book called Scapegoat. But according to media reports, he disappeared a year later after he began experiencing the symptoms of PTSD. For a while, he lived under a tree in a tent, smoking crack. But in 2008, he made his way back to society and started over yet again. In an interview with the Edmonton Journal in 2016, Brown said he's been through intensive therapy that forced him to relive the night of Shadane Narone's beating. Taylor still believes that Brown was unfairly punished.
1: Essentially, Kyle Brown was a whistleblower, and by him keeping the evidence that was irrefutable, he damaged an awful lot of careers higher up. I mean, the whole regiment and everything else would happened because they tried to cover it up. So he was punished uh, far more severely than anybody else, as you mentioned. And his role in it, um, he should have almost been praised as the whistleblower because without his photographs, it would have been his word against that of a doctor who could only find two small bruises.
0: Clayton Matchy lives in Saskatchewan. He has brain damage from his suicide attempt and spends most of his time in a veterans hospital or with his parents. He requires around the clock care. Taylor says there are still some unanswered questions about what happened to Matchy the night he attempted suicide.
1: He wasn't supposed to be found alive i don't believe i mean they arrested him and he was in kind of an open uh, open custody not open but he was in a a bunker that didn't even have a door on it he was in there and uh they'd left him his boot laces and his belt and then it was dr armstrong was going by the front of the cell when he saw u.s special forces in the cell um allegedly cutting him down but what u.s special forces would have been doing in that cell we never got to in the Somali inquiry. um that's Basically, when we got to the port, we were going to have to involve the U.S. Delta Force guys as to why they were there and what was their involvement, Then it just got shut down.
0: Recently, a few of his fellow soldiers and Macchi's wife have asked for another look at his case, for another reason. Marge Macchi told CBC News in 2017 that she believes her husband, may have been experiencing severe psychological side effects from a controversial anti-malaria drug at the time he tortured and beat Shadayn Aron to death. Beginning in the 90s, Canadian soldiers, including members of the Airborne Regiment, were prescribed a weekly dose of mefloquine. The side effects at the time were not well understood or explained to the soldiers. Health Canada now states the drug is associated with psychiatric and physical side effects ranging from anxiety and insomnia to vivid nightmares and hallucinations. In 2017, the government announced that mefloquine would only be used in the Canadian Armed Forces as a drug of last resort. On May 1, 2019, a mass tort, which is similar to a class action lawsuit, was launched against the Canadian government on behalf of soldiers who claimed they were poisoned by the anti-malaria drug while on missions in Somalia, Rwanda, and Afghanistan. The law firm involved in the mass tort says that over 800 soldiers have joined the unprecedented case, including retired Lieutenant General, Romeo Dallaire, who led the 1993 UN peacekeeping mission to Rwanda. Canada's role in peacekeeping is something that many of us wear as a badge of honour. It's been a big part of our identity, partly because we invented it. It was Canadian External Affairs Minister Lester B. Pearson who proposed the first large-scale deployment of peacekeepers to Egypt during the Suez Crisis in 1956. Pearson was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts, and Canada remained a mainstay of UN peacekeeping for decades contributing 125,000 troops and police officers to missions in more than 35 countries. But the 90s was an incredibly difficult time for Canadian peacekeepers, not just in Somalia, but also in the Balkans and Rwanda. And that took a toll. Since then, Canada's involvement in peacekeeping has steadily declined. Today, just 49 Canadian peacekeepers are deployed in UN operations in Haiti and Mali. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the troubling story of the Somalia affair. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to my guest, Scott Taylor. The former commando has been publisher and editor of Esprit de Corps magazine since 1988. You can also find a link to the 1997 final report prepared by the Commission that investigated the deployment of Canadian forces to Somalia. Many of the facts contained in this episode were taken from that report. We also relied on reporting from multiple news sources, including the Toronto Star, Global News and the CBC. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. We're very close to the 1,000 mark, so please push us over the edge. Leaving reviews also helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kanzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. And special thanks to Dylan Moore for his editing assistance. See you next time for more History of the 90s.